This is one of the issues that I think is hardest to comprehend in the 21st century. Uh, today, the church has good relations with many nations and governments, and members of the church are elected to office at uh, federal and state, local levels. But in this moment, the church was near the top of public enemies of the federal government, and it's receiving the full force of federal antagonism. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Today, we're going to be discussing Chapter 37 of Saints, Volume 2, To the Throne of Grace. Joining us today is the director of the Church History Library, Keith Erickson. Welcome, Keith. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, Keith, we're excited to have you here to talk about this chapter. There's some areas I know that you have some particular insights in, and we're excited for you to share them with us. Let's start off with the Quorum of the Twelve. We've seen in previous chapters that there's been some disunity among the Quorum, and can you just sort of refresh our listeners' memories on what is this disunity about and who are the parties who are concerned? At the heart of the issue are questions about some of the things that George Q. Cannon has done while he was a member of the First Presidency at a time in which the First Presidency was largely underground, they couldn't meet, they had to operate individually. The questions originate with some of the younger members of the quorum. Heber J. Grant is uh, one of the more notable names, but there are others. And they're really wondering, questioning, and, and sometimes outright alleging or charging, accusing that George Q. Cannon is doing things for which he draws personal benefit. And this disunity is really stopping them from forming a new First Presidency after the death of President John Taylor. That's right. It's really a moment of institutional paralysis. And the question, as we've seen throughout earlier moments in church history, it wasn't entirely clear during Joseph Smith's life what to do immediately after a church president passes away. And so at each time as it passes to Brigham Young or John Taylor, there are questions, they kind of rework it, they hash it over, but that comes up again with this question about how quickly to form a presidency, only this time it's crossed with these interpersonal conflicts. Some of the other conflicts that the saints are having at this time, I mean, with the federal government, they've taken control of any assets over $50,000. So this is including temples. And so I thought it was interesting from the book we read that even Temple Square, they gained control of and they rented it back to the church for a dollar a month, which was kind of insulting. Tell us about the other issues that are going on with the federal government. Yeah, this is one of the issues that I think is hardest to comprehend in the 21st century. Uh, today, the church has good relations with many nations and governments, and members of the church are elected to office at uh, federal and state, local levels. But in this moment, the church was near the top of public enemies of the federal government, and it's receiving the full force of federal antagonism. So there's legislation against the church. That legislation is held up in the Supreme Court. Executive actions are taken. The church loses property. Individuals are disenfranchised. People are put in jail. And it's just an all-out assault on the church. I think it's important to put into context the way the federal government treated the Latter-day Saints. 
And if we look at the Supreme Court in the 1880s when this legislation was passed, this is the same Supreme Court that rules that it's okay to exclude Chinese immigrants. This is the same Supreme Court that rules that it's okay to go back on treaties with Native Americans. A few years later in the 1890s, this is the same Supreme Court that rules the Plessy versus Ferguson ruling, that separate but equal is okay. And so the Latter-day Saints are right in a moment in which the federal government is stripping rights and attacking minorities all across the spectrum. And we are one of the groups that fall into this moment. At this same moment, when there's such great animosity toward the church, a temple is finished. The Manti Utah Temple is finished. And I don't know about you guys, but the first time I read this, I was surprised to learn that the temple was dedicated privately. There wasn't a big giant open house and invite all the neighbors and let's have a celebration about this, but the temple was dedicated privately. Is that due to this persecution at this time? Yeah, here's a great case of one of the church's strategies in dealing with the federal government at this time, which was to hide or go underground or to not make a big deal about events. And so the actual dedication was a private event, Though there was a public event that local saints could participate in, but the formal action was private as part of this attempt to remain below the radar. Let's listen to just one little clip here from the book. This is part of Wilford Woodruff's dedication prayer for the Manti Temple. Thou hast seen the labors of thy saints in the building of this house. Their motives and their exertions are all known to thee, he prayed. We this day present it to thee, O Lord our God, as the fruit of the tithings and free will offerings of thy people. I really liked that, especially when he says their motives and their exertions are known to thee, because it was such a difficult time for the saints that they managed to build this beautiful temple. It's actually personally my favorite. <laughs> but it's kind of incredible because, like we said, there was a private dedication with Wilford Woodruff. And then later, at the public dedication, these saints were having spiritual manifestations that really, they described them as being evidence that even in the most cloudy times, the Lord was with them. And so just what a neat experience of faith and confidence, I think. Keith, we have another friend that we've been sort of growing up with in Saints Volume 2, and that is Sousa Young Gates. She's married now to Jacob Gates, and she's got a cool idea. She writes to the ladies who are publishing the Women's Exponent and tells them that she'd like to join up and she's got really amazing ideas on how to change the direction and the vision of the Women's Exponent. Tell us a little bit about what happens there. I really appreciated reading this story because it resonated with something that happens to me all the time as the director of the Church History Library. And that is that there are many wonderful saints who get great ideas, they get excited about things, and they bring them in, and they present them. And they are convinced that this is what we should do, what we could do. One of the things I appreciated with the Susie Young Gates story is that when she brought her ideas in, and these were dramatic. These were talking about changing the print material, changing the frequency, changing in some ways it would change the audience. These were dramatic changes that she was proposing. What I appreciated was that her enthusiasm continued when they redirected her to another direction. And they basically said, no, we have this magazine. It's doing what we want it to do, but we don't have anything that helps the young women. 
And so Sousa, with her enthusiasm and her expertise and her excitement, she jumped into that project and she laid the foundation for fantastic work and became a significant person in the history of young women, that organization and the development. And it just makes me wish that there were people today who would be able to redirect their enthusiasm. Many times people get offended and say, oh, well, if you don't like my idea, then I'm not going to help. I'm not going to do. But Sousa, I think, is a great example of getting excited, counseling with leaders and getting the direction and then plunging forward in harmony with that direction. Well, and Keith, something I love about this story is that more than just her being passionate about it, she and even her husband kind of felt inspired that she should pursue this. And so I think that when we feel that way and we feel like we have a direction and it gets shot down, that's when we should look for other opportunities. And I think she's such an incredible example of that. And it gives us hope that, you know, when we do feel shot down, there are still things that we can add value to. And one of the temptations there is to think, well, I got inspiration. My inspiration was right. And it may be that the point of the inspiration was to move you to have the conversation, to show your enthusiasm so that the leaders and those you counsel with can say, here's the best way to use that enthusiasm. And so there are a lot of things that can happen in inspiration. It doesn't mean you get all the details, but it does mean it gets you in the right place and the right conversation and ultimately going in the right direction. It very well could be that the answer for her inspiration was being able to get an answer back from Romania Pratt, giving her additional insights and moving her to this new direction. I think that's a great insight. appreciate you sharing that with us. And for those readers who want to see the result of Sousa's work, the Young Women's Journal is in the Church History Library catalog. And you can get there at catalog.churchofjesuschrist.org. It's awesome. We've talked about it before. It's in the footnotes, but you can check that out as with all the other resources that are linked to from the footnotes in Saints. Well, let's move on to the next story here in this chapter, and that is George Q. Cannon. George, we've talked about in previous episodes and falling off the train and all of the issues that have led up to this point, but he's decided he's just going to go to prison. And so he does. Let's listen to just a little quote here from the book about this moment for George. When he learned that the United States attorney was willing to recommend a lenient sentence, George began to consider how turning himself in might benefit the saints. His surrender could serve as an olive branch to Washington's lawmakers. He also hoped his actions might strengthen the resolve of other men to face up to similar charges. So, Keith, tell us about George's experience in prison. What was that like for him? Well, it was a really interesting experience. He was a celebrity. And this is another thing that's hard for us to imagine in the 21st century. It's just how well-known George Q. Cannon was. He was a member of the First Presidency, so imagine somebody who's a beloved spiritual leader. He was also the head of the major local news media, so imagine a, a media leader. He had served as a delegate, a representative to Congress, so imagine a prominent political figure. And he was a wealthy businessman. And we really don't have anyone on the landscape today who does all of those. So this is the most famous person that there is among the saints. And it's funny to me that even when they put out bounties on people's heads, the bounty on George Q. Cannon was higher than the bounty on the, right. the John Taylor. So George Q. Cannon walks into prison as a celebrity. 
And it's almost like there is tremendous respect for him. He walks in, people acknowledge what he's sacrificed, that he's given himself up. He has, you know, many days there, but in some ways, the experience is respectful. He's able to host visitors. He's able to conduct church business. He starts a little Bible study class. People in the prison take their photographs with him. This is the moment. When else are you going to be with somebody who's so prominent, so famous? And so we do have, again, in the library's collection and other family records, people cherish these photographs of their ancestor with George Buchanan in the prison. Yes, and you can go to churchhistorianspress.org. We've talked about this in his journal, but you can also find these prison photos, which are really some of my favorite and the wanted poster as well, because you do kind of see these people who are excited to kind of pose with a member of the First Presidency in his prison garb. But I love the fact in his journal, he says it felt like his prison cell, that angels had been there, and he was being uplifted, and he starts a Bible class. That's just so typical George Q. Cannon. I love it. Tell us about Joseph F. Smith. So we've got one member of the First Presidency in prison, and Joseph F. goes off, and he's hiding in plain sight, basically. Yeah, it's really interesting that there are many strategies to respond to the pressure from the federal government. We see people going totally underground. We see George Q. Cannon submitting. We see Joseph F. trying to work with the system. So he goes to D.C. He's trying to help move things through committee. There's even a point where he's trying to do some financial things. But the end result is he's trying to work with the system to get protection, to move things through. And it just really represents that the response to federal pressure is to try and work every avenue that's available. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book that talks about that transaction that you mentioned. Joseph considered it an act of betrayal. A few months earlier, Peters had extorted $5,000 from the church with a promise that he would be lenient in future prosecutions of Latter-day Saints. Although political favors were often bought and sold at this time in the United States, Joseph's whole being had revolted at the thought of paying Peters. But after discussing the matter with Wilford, Joseph had decided that submitting to the blackmail might help protect the saints. This really made me honestly uncomfortable, knowing that they were being extorted and knowing that a payment was made. It just feels wrong on so many levels. Well, and it's a symptom of the power dynamic. It had shifted. The church doesn't own property. The church isn't recognized. There's threats of imprisonment. And so when the power shifts like that, you are more susceptible to extortion, to other actions that try and take advantage of you. Let's talk now about Ziny Young. She recently returned from Salt Lake. We've talked in previous episodes about how she was in Cardston. And she is called as the General Relief Society president and calls counselors. And I just thought it was fascinating the kind of responsibilities that the general presidency of the Relief Society had at that time. Will you just tell us what was that like for them? What were they involved with? Yeah, this is far 
larger than any organization that people run in the church today with counselors or teachers or activities. In the 19th century, the Relief Society was in charge of many institutions with physical assets. They were in charge of a hospital. They were storing grain and grain storage facilities. They had financial assets that they were caring for. They were collecting dues from individual members, so there were some fiscal responsibilities. And as the organization grew to include uh, thousands and thousands of women throughout the territory, then this became a major, major organization in daily life and in community life. It was interesting to me, too, how with this sort of burgeoning organization and all these responsibilities, there seemed to be a need for unity to kind of bring us back together on what is our real purpose and tell us what they did to find that unity. Well, it's interesting because the short answer is they had a meeting. They started a conference where they could gather together and stay unified. And today we often tell jokes about meetings. Oh, I have to go to meetings or I've got to attend this event. But in reality, when you have people, multiple people, large numbers of people, meetings are the price that you pay for unity. You go together, you spend time together, you listen to each other, you understand people's perspectives. If your goal is unity, then the road to unity is spending time, listening, being in meetings, and understanding one another's hearts. Keith, I know you've lived in many different places throughout your professional and academic career. I wonder if your experience has been a little bit like mine when when I've lived away or I've been traveling and I had an opportunity to go to a general priesthood meeting or even just go to sacrament meeting after being on the road for a long time, that experience felt totally different than when I was just at home. I can't really describe it. Like I just felt at home. I was so grateful to be with people that I could worship with and feel the same. Have you had that kind of experience with all of your travels and work? I have, and you're right. There is something about that sense of gathering. I remember a time during General Conference when I was traveling on the other side of the world, and so the session was literally in the middle of the night, and I got up in the middle of the night and tuned in over the Internet to just feel both that temporal unity, to hear it at the same time, and know that with the saints around the world, I was part of that experience. There's a dimension. I believe, and there's a passage in the Doctrine and Covenants that talks about there's a special spirit that's poured out when you gather together at that moment of gathering. Yes, you can read the conference reports later, or somebody can tell you what happened, but when you get together, when you take the effort to gather together, the Lord offers even more. It is very unifying. And as you're talking about having that experience with General Conference, I've actually been having that experience with studying Come Follow Me and thinking that, you know, these few chapters that we're studying each week, that saints around the world are studying those chapters. And I can feel that. I can feel that unity. And it's been an incredible experience for me. So I appreciate you sharing that. Well, in these meetings that started happening here, these conferences, of course, the frequency and the gathering point and who was involved have changed over time, and there's been changes, but of course, we still have this. We have a general women's meeting, and the most recent changes are sisters, ages eight and up, all get to come together, and we still have it today. So it's great to see that there's some continuity even with the church today and some of these early innovations as they were trying to promote unity amongst the Relief Society sisters. And Emmeline Wells, so she's the secretary of the Relief Society General Presidency, and something that she wrote in her journal, it's in the chapter, but she said, responsibilities come thick and fast upon the women of Zion. And I just think that's 
a neat thing that she recognized then because they were involved. I mean, you mentioned a hospital. They were running all of these things, and she was even the editor of the women's magazine. And so they have all these things, but I think they thrived in that. And so that helps me in all of my responsibilities know that it's kind of because I'm a woman of Zion that I have so many responsibilities and that we do have help through these. But I just, I love her example. It's a great example. And to me, I also see the other thing that comes out of these gatherings is an organized message about suffrage and the rights of the Latter-day Saint women to vote. So here we see an additional response. You could, under the federal pressure, you could hide, you could work with the system, you could submit, and the women decide to fight. They had had the right to vote. They had exercised that. That was taken away. And so One of the things they do in their gatherings is organize to promote that right. And in that work, they end up networking with women across the country in the suffrage movement, and they become early leaders in what ultimately becomes a national movement with a national outcome. In 2020, we're celebrating two milestones related to this work of the women. We're celebrating the 100-year anniversary of the national right to vote that happened in 1920. There is an exhibit in the Church History Museum right now that puts this movement in context. It describes the Sisters for Suffrage and how they work together. But for Latter-day Saint women, this year is also the 150th anniversary of when they received the right to vote in 1870. So there's a double celebration for Latter-day Saint women this year. If you're in the downtown area, the Salt Lake City downtown area, I should say, um, do check out that exhibit over at the Church History Museum. Well, there's one more piece of unity in this chapter, and that is the conclusion of something we've seen in previous chapters. We now have the First Presidency is going to be reformed, and the Quorum of the Twelve is able to work through their differences. Can you help us just understand that a little better? Yeah, this, I think, is one of the turning points in the history of church leadership. And it's a moment where... There was disunity, as we've talked about. There was interpersonal conflict that people had to meet together and confess their own failings or their own uh, misperceptions. They had to really get their hearts and minds together. That took work. But one of the things we see in the kind of long-term history of the church is this was the last time that there was a lengthy gap without a president of the church. After this, they see and they begin to regularly practice the value of a quick transition. And then throughout the 20th century, that becomes even more formalized. And again, you take 12 or 15 people. Today, the brethren will often use a phrase and say, you know, none of us are shrinking violets. And by that, they mean they all have strong opinions. But in the 19th century, in this episode, we get to see that. We get to see really starkly divergent opinions And we see them reconcile that and come together because ultimately it's the the work of the Lord and they want to get their hearts aligned with him and his will and with each other. And we saw that process happen. In fact, along with this theme of unity that we've seen, President Wilford Woodruff, he shares his desire for the people to continue in unity. And let's listen to a clip from the book about this address that he gave. I have a great desire that, as a people, we may be united in heart, that we may have faith in the revelations of God, and look to those things which have been promised unto us," Wilford told the saints later in the meeting. 
he then bore testimony of Jesus Christ. In meekness and lowliness of heart he labored faithfully while he dwelt in the flesh to carry out the will of his Father, he said. Trace the history of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, from the manger to the cross, onward through sufferings, mingled with blood, to the throne of grace. And there is an example for the elders of Israel, an example for all those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a beautiful sentiment to, to follow the example of our Savior as we have need to find unity with others who we work with in our church callings and in our families and communities. I think that's a great place to end our episode today. Keith, we thank you so much for being here with us. Appreciate all that you do over at the Church History Library, and we appreciate you, our listeners, tuning in. You can always follow us at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org, and please do email us, saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org with your comments or feedback. Thanks again for listening. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey.